Hello everyone and welcome to the Power of Music Thinking. My name is Christoph Zürn and this is the podcast for people with a musical heart and a wicked job. We're looking for stories, insights and tools from the big world of music to inspire leaders and followers to listen, tune, play and perform in whatever field you're operating. Why can elements from music be applied for the benefit of communities or companies? How do you effectively use music and music thinking as a tool? And what does Beethoven's Ninth and Japanese woodwork have in common? We're in the in-between space between music and business, education and performance, listening and understanding, and London and Tokyo. So today we talk with Michael Spencer. Michael is the founder of Sound Strategies, TEDx speaker, visiting professor at Ueno Gakuen University in Tokyo, and the communication director of the Japan Philharmonic Orchestra. But he was head of education at the Royal Opera House in London and freelance violinist that has worked with the London Symphony Orchestra, Leonard Bernstein, Deep Purple, and on the Star Wars soundtracks with composer John Williams. Michael gives us a deep dive into why music functions and shares the elements and learnings he used, for example, in the townships in South Africa and his work with companies like Unilever, BASF, Daikin and Fujitsu. So we talk about making better connections and how musical systems, timing and structure help us to understand how things go together. And that music comes from the fact that it is some co-created system for creating relationship. So, there's a lot to learn today. Not only about music, but also about business and society. So, let's get into it. Welcome, Michael. Welcome to The Power of Music Thinking. Thank you, Christoph. Nice to be here. I was looking forward to this uh, to this conversation, and it has to do a lot with what we both like or, or find interesting. It's about music. It's about classical music. It's also about Japan, and it's also about um, you have a company, Sound Strategies, where you also work with organizations to yeah to to learn from music. But my first question is always the same. So the listeners already know the question that's coming up. It's like a ritual, and it's. What was your first sonic experience or album or performance that had an impact on you? Um, I think it was my father playing the organ, actually. Um, he was an amateur organist uh, many, many years ago. And I just remember him uh, struggling with this old tracker action organ. And uh, at that time, he, he'd had... Um, a problem as similar to sort of a mild stroke. So he, he became very deft with the use of his feet on the organ because he could use the pen. But I think that's one of my first memories. Right. And and what, what did it do to you? Were you already into music or was it just an annoying sound from your father? No, it was just, it was, my father was a very, um, 
uh, keen amateur musician, uh, but he ran uh, in in the UK. We have a lot of in the north of England, particularly a lot of amateur operatic societies. At that time, we did, and they would put together shows like Oklahoma and all those those sort of great uh, musicals, and they'd put these amateur productions together. My father used to conduct them, and mm-hmm. I used to go. In the, in the in the audience in the rehearsals and watch him doing that. So those were some of my first experiences as well, and I was just sort of taken very much by what he did. Um, but my first musical experiences, although he had great designs on me becoming a pianist, um, and I kind of didn't get on with it for some reason. But I, when I took the violin up, I was, it was quite late. It was about eleven when I took the violin. But I got. Uh, the violin up, but I got very interested in things like country and western. So I think I played much more folk music and things like that than I took to the classical repertoire. Can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? So let's say, what do you do? What do you do for a living? How do you make your money? And what how, what keeps you busy at the moment? Oh, that's a very complicated question. <laughs> um, I, people tend to phone me up and say, can I do a certain thing? And I'll say yes, and then I'll try and find a way to do it. Uh, most of my work is connected with the arts and particularly music, uh, but it's taken me into all sorts of different areas. I mean, my, my violin has been my passport. I mean, I was a professional player for a long time. Uh, I was in the London Symphony Orchestra, so I did all the, the chasing around the world and Star Wars and working with Bernstein and Deep Purple and all those sorts of things, which was just fantastic. But then I left that scene and I always sort of had a hankering to do other things. I got involved in uh, working in sort of the interface between the arts and society uh, because at that time, we're talking about the 1990s, uh, there was a great move afoot in the UK particularly to try and bring the arts into society and show the sort of value that they could give um, and to get away from this elitist Uh, sense of what, what a lot of classical music had that sort of brand with it, you know, the Opera House or the LSO, you know, considered elitist organizations. And I became very interested in this nascent movement to actually work in communities in different sorts of ways. And uh, so I ended up by uh, giving half my job away at the LSO to go and get involved in all sorts of other projects. So I was running projects in America, in uh, Spain. Uh, all sorts of places. Uh, I became head of education at the Royal Opera House. Um, there I worked on a software package called Into Arts Opera, which was sponsored by the government, and we sent it into 2,500 schools throughout the UK. And it was looking at the opera of uh, Benjamin Britten, Peter Grimes, which was all about social exclusion, and very challenging piece to put together, but absolutely super as a, 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 a platform for actually educational work uh, because we could cover so many different areas of, of, of the curriculum. And uh, basically the, the, the students who got involved in that were actually making their own versions of the opera but using the software to help them do that. Mm. So that, uh, that, that sort of led me into all sorts of other things. I worked on um, uh, the film uh, of Peter and the Wolf, the animation film, Uh, which got an Oscar, uh, and I did all the education assets around that. So, you know, this this work I'd done in um, uh, software development for the Opera House led me into all sorts of other places, 
And then I bumped into somebody in the street who worked for Unilever and said, look, we've got this course here at Unilever and we're bringing artists to work with our brand teams. Are you up for it? And I said, yeah, I'll do that. And so kind of got involved with Unilever and then things expanded and went into all sorts of other areas. So I was very lucky, but my, my violin in some ways was, was always my passport into these because I could always rely on that to get me out of trouble, as it were. No, if we cycle back to, let's say, to via the violin to the LSO, to the London Symphony Orchestra, you played there how many years? I was there for 14 years. 14 so years. So 14 years tra traveled the world and, and uh, saw, yeah, saw, saw the world. And as you just mentioned, the, you, you did the recording for the Star Wars. Can you, can you t uh, tell yeah. a little more about that? That wasn't at all of them. I mean, there were so many of them. But the one that sticks out in my mind is Empire Strikes Back. Uh, and that was extraordinary to work with, with uh, John Williams. And, of course, at that time, they were still copying the music out at the back of the, the, the studio. And so we were getting the parts, and they were still more or less wet. And you'd, you'd chase it through once, and then the red light would go on, and, and, and off you would go. And... You know, we had the top musicians in the country there. And, I mean, John Williams always used to say, you know, Abbey Road 1, LSO, unbeatable combination. And it really was. And to hear trumpet players like Maurice Murphy, who uh, really was the reason that, that uh, John Williams came to the LSO because of his spectacular trumpet sound that he had. So all those uh, early films of, of uh, John Williams, uh, you know, particularly Star Wars, it's always Maurice Murphy on the trumpet there, and he wrote the most amazing parts uh, for, mm. for, for Maurice. So players like that and, and working in this mighty machine in Abbey Road 1 was just extraordinary. And, I mean, John was very kind. I, I ran a, a, a movie project um, for the New World Symphony Orchestra in Miami once, and... Um, uh, John uh, and, and his uh, sound engineer, Sean Murphy, they arranged for me to have some uh, private clips from uh, the making of, of, of Star Wars. So it's a conversation between John Williams and the rest of the crew talking about specific scenes in The Empire Strikes Back. And they allowed me to have these because they were talking about the music and I could use those in my project. So it was a real cachet to have little clips like that, you know. Wow, so if you tell people, you know, this was from the Star Wars session, John Williams, London Symphony Orchestra in the Abbey Road studio. So people, yeah, uh, yeah, they, they, they are flabbergasted, I, I, I can imagine. But then you, you, from LSO, you went to the Royal Opera House, but also in a different function, right? Well, it's, I'd had started moving away from a career as a player, solely as a player, and I was doing a lot of work in, in communities uh, and getting very, very interested in it and different ways of using the arts, using music uh, as a tool almost. And uh, because of the projects I was running uh, on my own, uh, I was invited to actually go into the education department of the... Uh, of the Royal Opera House, and I became uh, uh, head of education there. Uh, there were two of us there uh, with different responsibilities. My responsibility was particularly for adults and community learning. Uh, but um, I got involved in all manner of things, and one of the most interesting projects I became involved in uh, was a project in South Africa in the townships. Uh, it was a project... Um, uh, 
uh, which we, we work with um, a team out there uh, specifically who we trained because it would have been quite arrogant for a team just to go out from the Royal Opera House and say, look, here we are, because that's sort yeah. of imperialism sort of rising you know but we did go out and, and put a team together and train them in some of those interactive skills and then basically uh, let them start work and we were always there to hold hands mm. uh, um, back several times and as they developed their own expertise we were there to help them and, and, and develop and that, that project ran for several years and it was, it was really at the instigation of Donald Gordon, who was um, a, a multimillionaire in South Africa and made his money out of insurance. And he decided he wanted to put some sort of project together which would benefit the um, communities and the townships. And he came to the, the Opera House and said, right, you need to come do a project for us in South Africa. Here's the money, go and do it. But he wow. really didn't know what he wanted. And so we did put this project there, which was based on a project uh, we call Write an Opera. Uh, at, we called Write an Opera at, at, at the Royal Opera House, where we work with teachers uh, to get them to understand how a dramatic structure was put together, how you added music to it, how you staged it, how you devised the costume. So the, it was starting at the very basis of an idea, okay, what is this drama going to be about? To the very end whereby you would actually be promoting it and selling tickets and things like that. So we, we worked with teachers on this write an opera project and uh, it was very successful and uh, teachers would come and train at the Royal Opera House. They could get a degree in that, that, that particular subject and it was incredibly effective because working with young people like that in this sort of environment, getting them to think differently, how they would express themselves in music, uh, in, uh, in narrative, uh, and it could be all sorts of topics they would fit into, into, into this format. And it was su really successful. I mean, in South Africa, well, two of the projects which always stick in my mind, uh, which was done with a team over there working with teachers in schools, uh, one of the top, two of the topics, one was about, is it right for teachers to be drunk in class? Which, you know, people find that possibly humorous, but it's a serious issue in the townships. Oh. Because uh, for the kids there, you know, they're living in families which might be uh, illicit drinking dens, gambling dens, things like that. So there's a lot of violence. Another drama that was done by these nine, ten-year-old kids was about child rape and dealing with, with that sort of issue. So there were very thorny issues that faced these young people. And, and the teachers and the teams helped them to try and work this through in this narrative context with music. And it was incredibly cathartic. Sounds interesting um, in, in the way like, you know, if you, if you think like you're head of education at the Royal Opera House, in the first uh, in, in the first place you would think okay you help all the players to be better players but um, but it's actually something different it's about what can the opera house give back to society 
And in, in, in that way, it's interesting to use what you just said, a music as a tool or as an approach or, yeah, and, it, and it's not about music at all. So I think that's, that, that's very interesting to, to, to bring everyone into the music, let them feel the music in, in the case of an, of an opera house. It's fantastic because normally you sit there, you paid, you, you, you paid the entrance and then there's the show, but all of the things that are around there, all the people that are needed to make that experience great is such a, a great analogy to every organization. Like it's not about the one, let's say our last campaign that's now uh, on show. It's about everything and everyone that makes this a, a, a great experience. So how did you exactly work? Uh, well, I've got, I've got, all sorts of projects and uh, at the moment I'm working on uh, on a project in Japan about collaboration uh, and in fact I'm part of the faculty uh, of uh, Yokohama University as, as part of the IMPM program which is this uh, um, uh, professional management training it's an international course which comes out from um, uh, from Canada uh, and it's it's run by um, Henry Mintzberg he started this whole program. Hmm. Uh, so looking at that, it, it, it's very interesting uh, about uh, how, it, it, I suppose what characterizes a lot of my work is about actually going really deep down, a deep dive into things like, you know, why music functions? Uh, why does it have the impact that it does? And, uh, and I think that with everything that I do, whenever I work with organizations, it's about the questions you have to ask the organization to try and really find out what they're after. If they say they want a team building project, you've got to say why <laughs> and, and what do you want out of it and how do you really see results? What's it going to look like? And, and, and what's the matter with your team at the moment? Why do you need to do any team building? And, and so you've really got to, to plumb the depths. And I, whenever I work with a company... I will spend a lot of time looking at, at how they appear uh, to the public, how they want to appear. I look through press reports. I always look through their uh, annual reports. Uh, often they have some sort of uh, social uh, uh, project. Uh, and most firms now, they have these sorts of things. They used to call it social uh, uh, corporate social responsibility, but the sort of terminology has changed now. But looking at that sort of program uh, that they run, and, and I think nine times out of ten, I find that there are interesting ways we can actually introduce into their whole initiative from the arts because of the nature of the arts and because of music, which is really about working with each other. And, and a lot of the work that really they're talking about with these, these corporate social responsibility programs is about making better connections. And it is right. about community. Right. And there's also a little bit the link that you, that we just said with the, let's say, Gesamtkunstwerk, um, where everything is important, but we sometimes only look to a certain part. And, or, or in modern times, we would say it's a holistic approach. And I, I really like your, um, your approach that you also even read the annual reports and all the reports, how they, uh, how they communicate and, and, and then try to find out how you can help them, how, how this might reson resonate with them. Absolutely. And, and also you've got to try and find a way to talk their language. 
Um, I, I, after I finished at the Royal Opera House, I went to, um, I took a course at Ashridge Business School uh, in culture changing organisations. And the reason for doing that was really to try and understand how people in the business world spoke to each other, because it was quite different from in the arts. And I, I knew this because I've been on so many, uh, so many meetings with corporate sponsors, and you would hear the way they would talk and what they wanted, and you would hear the way that the arts organisation talked, and they were really in different worlds. They never really were able to bridge that gap. They'd have sponsorship departments who would say, yeah. oh, no, middle and frankly they were really very ineffective there were a lot more things we could do with organizations but nobody knew the right sort of terminology and so that's why I went to Ashridge Business School and from that when I came out from that that was when I started Sound Strategies uh, uh, really and, and, and that came from this chance meeting with somebody who worked at, at Unilever and had said they were putting together a program to support their brand teams and they were bringing artists in, and would I come in and do a music program with the brand teams? Because, of course, you know, they're, they're, their competitors were people like Procter & Gamble, and, and, and they were looking for an edge, and they felt that if they could address the arts, bring it into their work environment, it might get their brand teams to think differently. So they had dancers, poets, photographers, visual artists, musicians. I was a music person. And, and that was very successful uh, in the end. Although the, the first workshop I did from them, nobody really knew what we were trying to achieve. Uh, and, 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 you know, we went in and we all had a lot of fun and people enjoyed it. Uh, and, and they asked me back. Uh, and I thought, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and I went back and I said, okay, if you want me to come back in, I want you to actually commission me just to really look about how we could do something effective, not just do kind of a jolly where everybody has a good time, they all bang a tambourine and they say, wasn't this wonderful? And they forget everything about it as soon as they leave. And, and so they did and, and uh, they asked me in uh, and I did some research about it and it was really very obvious some of the things that they were they were needing at that time. And, and uh, there were three questions I think I asked. I said, so how do you choose your music? Oh, no, how, first question was, where do you use music in your uh, environment, your branding environment? They said, well, of course, in all our commercials. Okay, fine. So how do you make your uh, choices about the music in your commercials? They said, well, we don't really know, actually. I said, how much money do you spend? Really? <laughs> that much? How do you justify that to your accountancy team? They said, well, we don't really know. And so I thought, this is interesting. We should get brand managers to make better judgments. I was not really interested in going in and saying, you should use this music with this brand of soap. I was not interested in that. Because of my background in education, and enablement using the arts, I wanted to actually get these brand teams to make their own decisions, or at least know why they were making choices. So that was the whole point about this. Uh, and we ran a, a very successful course with them called Breaking the Sound Barrier, and we got them making their own music for their, um, uh, for their respective ads. So they weren't going to use that, in the commercial world, you know, but they knew, understood the process. They understood the questions to ask. They understood their brands much better. And then as a result of that, all those brand teams went into their agencies and they challenged them on their music choices, uh, which was excellent. 
and, and, and as a result of that, there are a lot of changes made in the sort of music that some of the Unilever brands used. And subsequently, I ran that project in Japan with Unilever Japan. And that was a creativity project we did over there with them. I think that's that, that's very strong. And just to to stay a little bit with the, let's say, the Unilever uh, approach, it's like they ask you actually just for inspiration. Uh, they're bringing the arts. They want just more creatives. It's like in brainstorming. Come on, guys, more ideas and, and this and this. And everybody likes stuff. They want to be surprised. They know already a lot, a lot of stuff. And interesting is what you said before, is that using music more like the, the the holistic approach so for me it's also like the power of music and the power of music thinking so the power of music can help you to make a great campaign to give you a, a campaign sound like Bacardi had for example <laughs> um, where later um, they 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 just put the single on the market because everybody liked the song so much so this was the other way around but to go beyond that just the music and the let's say the backdrop or the wallpaper and just to make it sound to really connect it with the organization and that's um, that's really cool and you already gave the um the key word to japan because uh, that's <laughs> that's something that's uh you're since more than 30 years you're in japan and can you tell us a little bit more about it or maybe even a little bit more than a little bit <laughs> it's oh Japan has been my big adventure in life. It's been fantastic. Uh, I remember going there for the first time 30 years ago on a tour with the LSO. And uh, I remember saying to my friend on the flight out there, I've never been there before. You've been there. What do you do? She said, well, these are chopsticks. This is how you hold them. You eat this with this and that with that. Here's a map of the tubes out there of the underground. You're on your own. <laughs> So I was kind of walked out of the hotel, not really knowing very much. And at that time, 30 years ago, all the street signs used uh, Japanese characters. So you were completely lost. And I just remember walking out from the hotel. To this day, I remember walking out and just looking at this and thinking, I understand absolutely nothing. This is fantastic. And I'd loved it um, from the very start. Uh, and from that 30 years ago, I've been uh, every year, apart from during COVID. But I, I ended up, uh, I, most of my work now is in Japan. Um, and, and it takes on very many different forms. But uh, before uh, COVID, I was going six or seven times a year. I have various positions over there. And I've come to really uh, love the culture, enjoy being with the people. There are huge challenges with working in Japan, which people don't realize. And they come in all sorts of different surprising forms. Uh, but I, I, I decided some years ago that the only way I could really get close to the culture was to start to learn the language. Uh, and I speak Japanese very badly, but I can read a lot of it. And it's learning to read the language where it suddenly starts to open up because you understand a lot more of the subtleties behind it. So, yeah, Japan is, is, is really interesting because there are so many different challenges over there. And I think in Europe we have no idea about some of those things that happen on the other side of the world. You know, we are isolated from a lot of, and, and vice versa as well. And, and, and working in Japan has taught me a lot about working in different cultures, not just in Japan. Uh, uh, for a time, I was working between Japan and Spain uh, on different programs, and you couldn't have 
two more different cultures that you were working with. The only thing in common was they both love fish. (laughs) (laughs) What makes them different? Can can you paraphrase this? Well, well, um, yes. uh, Here's an example. Um, If you're in Spain, you're running a program, and you would say to anybody, right, do you have any questions? You couldn't stop the questions. You know, that's people, they want to ask questions, they want to know, they want to say, look, this is me, and I want to ask this question, you know. So it's kind of almost like about identity. Mm -hmm. If you say that in Japan, the room will go absolutely quiet, and nobody will say a thing. They call it sheen. And it's very difficult to get them to talk. So I, I, I say um, uh, in my presentations, I, I say, you know, we often say that in America there's no such thing as a dumb question. Uh, in England, we say, oh, yes, there is, because we're very mean <laughs> as the Brits, but we still ask the question. But in Japan, it tends to be that they, they say, uh, I've got lots of questions, but I'm not going to tell you what they are. And if you say that to a Japanese audience, they all recognize it. They absolutely recognize that. It's really interesting. And that's kind of an Asian thing. It's this Confucian background. It's partly it. And whereas in the West, we have a Socratic background. And it's, it's more complicated than that. Yeah. The devil difference. But uh, consequently, you know, there are lots and lots of different ways you have to handle things in Japan. But, but I think every teacher that listens now, if you do something or you have a presentation, you ask people, um, do you have any questions? most of the, the the time people are also like offended in the way they just were entertained or they're just listening or maybe doing something else uh sitting on their phones um and also interesting that spanish people want to be there want to say okay i can ask a question this is this room is also for me but it, interesting do, do you know why this is in in in, in japan do they yeah uh, are they is there a fear or is it just a habit No, it's it's deeply ingrained, uh, uh, and it's the, the um, Confucian background uh, largely there. Um, when you, when you look deeper into it, it's not just that, but it's about hierarchies. It's about uh, risk taking, uh, things of that order. You know, if you if you ask, it, it's it's changing, but very slowly. It's different amongst young people in Japan now, but for the old school, you know, still, you know, if you ask a question, it means you're taking responsibility, and then you might fail, and all sorts of things like that, you know. And and, and the, the Japanese, they have a, an expression, which still to an extent rings true, which is the nail which sticks out will be hammered down. Hmm. And the nail that sticks out is the person who asks the question. By the way, I think we have this... Also, a little bit in in, in the Netherlands, uh, where you where some people say, oh, you, know, you don't tell where you're good at." So it's not about yeah. asking questions because they do it here quite a lot. But it's like from "don't stand out." I think that, uh, that that's uh, yeah, that's something so that people say, "Oh, why are you standing out?" And then you get some kind of some kind of reactions uh, to this. I mean, people say this, you know. Uh, certainly, you know, in Europe, you find this as well, but. Believe you me, in, in Japan, it's a whole different level uh, yeah. there. And you find yourself in front of a room of people and everybody has gone silent. Yeah. And nobody says anything. <laughs> nobody at all. And, and that can be quite intimidating when you have television cameras on you. <laughs> <laughs> But talking about silence, um, because the Japanese are famous to have words or expressions or even kanjis about um, some expressions that are 
in some way hard to translate. One word in particular over there, which is is really uh, fascinating, it's called ma, and ma uh, is really it means an uh, the character itself means a kind of an interval or a space, but in fact, uh, its implication is far deeper than that. It's about really the the potential of nothingness, actually, and and you. Hear it's very much a part of Japanese society, uh, and even with young people, it's really interesting. If you talk to them about that, they they don't admit to it. Then eventually, they'll say, "Oh yes, that. Well, we all know that, <laughs> you know." Old style. Uh, but yeah, but you notice it in conversations. You notice it in the art. You notice it in the way they 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 organise their buildings. Uh, all sorts of things. This idea of of how you deal with space is really interesting. And it's it's always struck me. It's very much like um, in in visual art. We talk about negative space, mm-hmm. uh, describe an object, and and that's it, and that's taking care of that negative space, so that really you know even with music as well, uh, you know, no performance over there. It's really the silences mm-hmm. that sculpt the piece, and and no music doesn't work with a conventional meter as we would in the Western form. Kind of waiting for that right moment. And then, you know, it, 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 then you start. And it's like Shakuhachi playing as well. Do you know, I, I love the description the other day where Shakuhachi playing is really about philosophy and music, philosophy and sound, uh, which I, I, the first time I've come across that description, I thought, gosh, that's really powerful. And as a Shakuhachi player yourself, you will know that. <laughs> Absolutely. That, that was for me also a reason to pick up that instrument and uh, to... L- actually learn to listen and play at the same time which when you play a different instrument then you um yeah you you play or if, if you're in an orchestra literally you play the score and there it says where you don't play and that's not necessarily silence okay it's silence from you but other people's are playing at that moment and uh yeah um i like that in in japanese very very much to 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 have that space to 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 compose that that's that that's that, that space and also when you when you get up on the stage already making clear that when you are there that this is a part of the music uh, that also links back to a john cage and it's uh, for 433 so you just get up and you just listen you just be there also be 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 there yourself and when you play it's also like you might not master it, but maybe there's also no sense in mastering it. It's it's about sense in yeah, or, or, or a sense in must trying to master yourself, which you will never, you might never succeed. That was that was my 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 only ever piano recital. Uh, I, I played John Cage four minutes thirty three. I remember walking up to the piano in Japan, and people I heard the audience saying, "I didn't know Mike San could play the piano." And of course. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but but also, uh, just on a more serious note, I, I just recently I was working on a project with about 50 execs from around the world uh, who come to Yokohama uh, for this collaboration model that we run in, in, in Japan. And I worked with a, a Zen priest at that time. Uh, and the two things which really came out from what he was talking about and things I'd read was this idea about attentiveness and empiricism which is so important in 
uh, in the whole musical sphere as well. So the idea of listening, what is really going on, that attentiveness, that deep listening, um, active listening, uh, uh, but also trying stuff as well, that idea of empiricism. And so, you know, in, in Zen, you are always prepared for what might happen. So you, as a swordsman, you don't learn lots and lots of clever techniques. It's actually you're really thinking about what is happening in the moment and then allowing that to happen, which I think is, is, is very relevant to, you know, a lot of people who improvise or both musically, but if they have to make a speech or they have to react in a particular situation. So it was very valuable to take those lessons. And I think there's a lot of that sort of thing which can be applied to music making as well. Hmm. Um, I wonder if there's improvisation in, in Japan. And like in improvisation, we, we offer something, an idea, like um, if you play, you just play something and then you see how other people react on it. So there's an, a dialogue uh, in it and you have to give before you can take. And the only thing is that you start, all of you, holding the space with the, the the listening space, but someone has to start. And that's, um, how, so how would prototyping or improvisation work in, in Japan? Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's not so much a history of improvisation in Japan uh, as such, but there is, uh, you know, as I mentioned in No, there is a question of waiting for the right moment to start. And, 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 and so that's, reacting to what what the surroundings are saying to you but um this is kind of one of the anomalies with, with in, in japan as well that historically a lot of of the, the art forms are very strictured so i did a lot of work with kabuki mm. uh, which is the major uh, uh dramatic form in in, in japan um, can you explain a little bit kabuki it's a theater it's theater it's music theater it's in England, we have pantomime. It's like 16th century Japanese, or oh, 17th century Japanese pantomime. Uh, so it's, uh, and you have uh, the uh, these highly dramatic historic plays which relate to things that have happened in, in, in the past, but also you've got humorous things as well. But they're set, and a lot of the plays really come from about 300 years ago, and, and they've been developed since then, but they grow up, Uh, they're performed by groups of, of, of performers who are in families. Uh, and you have to really grow up in a family. They do adapt, adopt people, uh, uh, new actors, in, in, into uh, the, the, their theatre companies now. But it wasn't the case before. You had to grow up uh, within the family. And the story of Kabuki is really fascinating uh, because it's a story of the battle between politics and the arts. Mm. Uh, um, it started around about 1600 in Kyoto uh, and, and it was originally started by a woman uh, and uh, they were called riverbed beggars, the actors who were there because they performed in the riverbed and they created these plays and people loved it and they gathered and then of course the, the local government didn't like this because the problem was if people gathered together it could ferment a rebellion or something like that so they stopped it and they said, well, uh, base... Oh, and then also, uh, the, the, from the stage it was being used as a platform for prostitution as well. So, so this was the reason why it was stopped. So they said, you can only ever have male actors. Well, the same thing happened. <laughs> and, 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 and so it was always this battle between the authorities and what the kabuki companies could get away with. And one of my favourite stories... Um, 
about Kabuki was that uh, you had these theatres eventually, and they they needed uh, three floors in these these to make it pay basically, and uh, so as a means to stop them uh, getting more people in there because they were worried about uh, groups of people gathering there, uh, the authorities said you can only have two floors in the in the. Uh, so what the um, uh, Kabuki companies did, they said, okay, well we'll say we'll call it. Uh, ikai, Chukai, and Nikai, which means first floor, mezzanine, and second floor. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how they got round it, uh, which was fascinating. Uh, you know, but, so there's this battle all the time between the authorities. So it's a very complicated history, and I became very involved in Kabuki because I did a project in uh, 2001 for the Japanese embassy in London, and I brought Kabuki to uh, the UK, uh, but for kids, mm. and found a way to fit it into the uh, English curriculum, and we performed, we did uh, workshops with students, with young people up in uh, Edinburgh, in Newcastle, uh, down in London, we took over the whole Japanese embassy and made it into a kabuki theatre, we did it at the British Museum, and, and in order to fit it into the British curriculum, we took the balcony scene from Romeo and Juliet, and we turned it into a piece of kabuki. Oh. <laughs> Everybody will. Absolutely. <laughs> Everybody understands from their own background how this works. Absolutely. Because Absolutely. Um, young kids in the UK, they already know Shakespeare, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, that was so we could embed the Shakespeare into the curriculum for them, but they were looking at it in a different sort of way and expressing it in a different sort of way. So we could also cover uh, different languages. At that time, people were starting to use emails much more, so we could do technology, we could do design technology, could cover geography, we could do all sorts of different things from this one project. So it was a cross-curricular project, uh, and it's a really effective way of, of embedding uh, an initiative in a school which will cover all sorts of different areas and involve the whole school. Yeah, wow, fantastic. Fantastic also to... to synthesize so i don't want to say merge but to synthesize different elements to to each other and and also understanding the analogies like a, like you said uh, kabuki and the pantomime so people say hey hang on i've i've seen something similar before so people um, get a, a broader horizon of their of their experience and and thinking And it really, I mean, it really is pantomime. It's amazing. You get uh, audience participation, but only people who are uh, of a sufficient stature in the audience that they can do it. <laughs> and, and they call them kakigoi, and they shout out the name of the actor, Toga! from the whatever it is from the from from the back of the theatre. But there's only certain people who are allowed to do it. You see, they've got to time it well. So that's kind of the formal aspect of of of, of, um, uh, of of Japan as well, which is interesting because you've got as a foreigner, you've got to respect that, but you've got to work around it. Certainly, in the sort of things that we do. Uh, I mean, I once once uh, uh, some of the. Uh, people and uh, participants in a workshop they, and I was trying to get them to ask questions in my early days out there and they said yes but Mike Sam we don't do this sort of thing in Japan I said well I'm not Japanese and I can't possibly teach you to be Japanese and I'm here to teach you some other things <laughs> <Good>. <laughs> a 
that's nice. But by the way, you you, you told me um, bef uh, before the recording uh, also uh, about Beethoven's Ninth because this is such an important important um, musical piece for the Japanese. And uh, you know, if if we talk about the background of kabuki or or the silence and the, and, and and the ma, and then say, okay, how does Beethoven the Ninth fit in? Why why is it so? Why do they like it? What 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 gives it to them more than just the music? Well, it's it's an interesting story actually about why uh, uh, Beethoven Nine is so popular uh, in 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 Japan. Uh, it had its first performance in about 1920 by a group of German prisoners of war that were in, in Japan, uh, and that it, I think they'd been captured in Russia in the Great War, uh, and, and somehow they ended up in Japan. So they did this performance. That was the first time the Japanese had heard it. And they performed it now and again. And, and of course, you remember that, one has to remember that in Japan, a lot of Western culture was imported Uh, from about the end of, from about 1870 onwards, uh, because up until that point, that had 250 years of isolation. It was basically a feudal society. And so they suddenly brought all these foreign influences in. And so uh, they were brief, they formed their first orchestras around that sort of time. They gave a lot of their own musical culture away, and their own musical culture was just so rich and so interesting. Uh, but they gave a lot of it away and had to kind of recreate it. Uh, but in the meantime, they were bringing all these Western influences in. So Beethoven 9 was performed back in the 1920s. It was then actually emerged every now and then. And then in the about 19th, early 1940s, uh, there was a big celebration in Japan because it was uh, a celebration of the founding of Japan. Uh, I, I can't remember which anniversary it was, but hundreds and hundreds of years. And they had this big celebration. And they said, and it was at NHK, Uh, the uh, the national broadcasting company. They were going. They said, "Well, what can we do to celebrate this?" And somebody said, "Well, in Germany, uh, at this time of year, which was New Year, they always play Beethoven's Ninth Symphony." Of course, it's not true. <laughs> But this is what they do. They said, "Oh, well, in that case, we'd better do it." So they performed Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, and everybody thought, "Oh, this is really special. We've got to do this at New Year." So the tradition started to actually play Beethoven's Ninth, and it became embedded in society. And then the orchestra of which I worked with had just formed around about 1960s, and they were looking for a way to actually keep their budgets up. And they realized they had this, this, these, this popular following for Beethoven Ninth. So they just did lots and lots of Beethoven Nines everywhere because it brought an audience in. And as a result, it became absolutely embedded in society. In the society, so and they call it daiku, which means the ninth. So, uh, so ku is one of the words for nine. Uh, Japanese counting in Japanese is, is a, a minefield. They have lots and lots of different words for the same number. Uh, uh, you know, so if it's a small animal, it will be kupiki. If you had nine, uh, nine, nine, nine small animals, or uh, uh, and, and uh, if it's a long flat thing, you use mai. If it's a, if it's a narrow thing, you call it hong. So nihon, no nippon is is two, two uh, long narrow things, and you've got all these counting words. So daiku, daiku relates to the the, the ninth. Um, and, There's uh, also a story about the ninth about the the CD. 
in the beginning uh, of the 80s when Philips and, and Sony um, tried to come up with the standard? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. All of that. Yes, 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 yeah. Uh, it, it's extraordinary. And, and how using this particular symphony, you know, very yeah, much so. Right. So I, I heard about it was like they, they were talking about how big can they make the CD? So is it one and a half, uh, sorry, 11 and a half or 12 inch? And there was a discussion about it. And then there was the idea, uh, I, I think from the from the head of, of Sony who said, okay, but the ninth symphony should be there completely without turning or uh, without using another one. Um, there was the one recording from Furt Wengler in 1951, which was 74, because we all know that symphonies can differ in, in length, depending on how, how they, how they play it. So there's that, uh, there's this, this, the story about the ninth and the, and the, and the CD. Gosh, I'd, I've forgotten that. Yes. Thank you for reminding me about that. That's a great story, actually. That's a great story. But of course, you know, they would have had to have fit within a, That, that certain time scale, they couldn't take time over with it. There's a joke about it because when they brought out the CD, um, it still was not able to to hold 74 minutes. So it was only 72. So the, the, that famous recording of uh, 1951 from Fort Wengler, um, I, I looked it up, it was just in 1997 that it could go on a CD. <laughs> That's really interesting. <laughs> Staying on the ninth, you you also told me that you use this in in, in workshops and you draw some analogies to Japanese. Uh, what is it? Woodwork. Well, it's because it's 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 used so often in, or it's performed so often in Japan. Yet people only ever know the last movement and the big tune, and people go along and sing that, and they don't really understand what happens before that. So I was I, I said I think we need to do a workshop. Uh, for adults about Beethoven 9 just to understand how it functions. Uh, and a lot of my work uh, in the education field is about understanding structure, but in kind of interactive ways, getting people to do things. Uh, and, and it was just purely by chance in a conversation I had with somebody, and I heard this word daiku again, and I, I said, oh, you know, you're talking about Beethoven 9. They said, no, we're talking about carpentry. I said, what? why is Why is that? Daiku. Oh no, daiku also means carpenter. And this is, this is one of the minefields in learning Japanese because there are so many homonyms. So many words sound the same and they mean something completely different. So I had this word daiku meaning the ninth and daiku meaning carpenter. And I suddenly, it gave me an idea, uh, a germ of an idea. And I thought, wow, was Beethoven a genius or just a very good carpenter? So we could call it Daiku no Daiku. We could call it the Carpenter of the Ninth. Mm. So I started more Japanese carpentry, and look, which was fascinating uh, because it's radically different uh, the, the skills they have in Japanese carpentry from what we have in in, in the West. That, for instance, the saws they cut on the pull, not on the push. So you yeah. get very And, and there are no nails. There's no glue. Nothing. It all goes together like this extraordinary, elaborate. Uh, a jigsaw, but in an enormous scale. If you look at some of the, those those temples, are massive. And so I thought this is interesting because actually temple construction, it's all around these big pillars which are held together by these beams. They call them hari in in, in Japan. So and these beams are very similar to each other. And the more I thought about it, I thought, gosh, this is exactly the way that the Beethoven works. We have these 
supporting harmonic pillars. And we move from one tonality to another tonality and another one again. And it's all held together by these motives. Ya da 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 da, da 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 da, all those sorts of repeating uh, uh, motives all the time. And it holds this whole harmonic structure together. So I had this idea about how we could use one of the most famous temples in Japan, Todaiji, as a metaphor for, for Beethoven 9. And of course, listening to Beethoven 9, for some people, is very much a spiritual journey, as going to Todaiji is for people. To, it's a spiritual journey. And I was able to extend this whole design of uh, Todaiji and different elements of the buildings there and actually relate them to Beethoven 9. But basically the idea being that Beethoven 9 is built around this huge harmonic structure which is held together with lots and lots of different motifs all the time. And it's Beethoven's skill as a musical carpenter that holds that all together and he's able to make that big structure uh, because of, of that, the, the relationship between the tonalities. So it was, it was a really good uh, project to do. And, and, and the Japanese love this play on words, this like daiku no daiku. So... <laughs> really well oh that also re resonates a lot with me um and what i find so interesting in uh, japanese um, carpentry or uh, i even think it's more a joiner or a joinery because a joiner is actually someone who joins without glue so that's the difference between a cabinet maker, huh, where you use nails and, and, and glue just to bring stuff together but what they do they just take that wood and just work the work the wood and i think that's so cool and that's actually that's why um I, i love your your analogy so much because these these are the motives so there is no trick about it nor glue or no nails it's just these motives bring these big harmonies structures to to, to together i think that's very very strong very strong analogy And of course, this is your particular specialization too, Christoph. So you yeah. will appreciate. In the beginning, when you're in school, you have to dovetail uh, some some stuff, and I think maybe that's good um, good um, uh, comparison uh, when you you work with the dovetail. So you just cut out stuff. So you learn this as a cabinet maker, but later you just use yeah glue and everything else that goes quick, quick, quick. And maybe that's also the power that it's really you, you don't even see it. But you know that these uh, wooden things are yeah, joined together without any other uh, material. And they're built to last. That's the extraordinary thing. So they, the carpenters say that you know, if you're building a temple, you don't just buy some trees. You actually buy the whole hillside because the trees which grow on the north side will go on the north side of the temple. And the ones on the south side, on the south side, and and the, the the wood is actually kept in that they they know which where is the top end of the tree because that will go at the top of the pillar, as well, uh, and and also in, interesting um, one of the I forget which temple it, it is now but, but one of the um, uh, one of the buildings that burnt down and there was a matching tower there with that and so they've rebuilt it, but they've rebuilt it so that in three hundred years time they'll be the same size. It's long time thinking, and and actually um, that resonates, I think, a lot with the let's call it challenges of our day, 
that we have to think a little bit more than just the next deal of next week or next month and understand long-term thinking also together with yeah what 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 the earth needs or and, and how, how it works and i'm i think that's very in that in that way even very modern to understand a craft and craftsmanship and and that's also in music like in any other craft to really um, make um, some sustainable decisions and uh, and the whole circular business or circular economy where we're talking about and it's it's more yeah, often it, it it sounds like a greenwashing um, keyword, but I think we can learn a lot from these long-term thinking and craftsmanship. And also, you know, it, it it requires reflection. Reflection takes time. Music takes time. People don't realize that actually. To actually really come to grips with a piece of music, it could take several listenings. You know, we have to use our memory. Uh, it's not like visual art. You know, we, we have to remember, I remember uh, there's a great uh, quote from Daniel Barenboim that he said that, you know, people talk about listening to contemporary music and avant-garde music and, and, and uh, how it's difficult. And he said, but you can't judge it on one piece of, one listening alone. He said, you can't judge a piece of Mozart on one listening alone. He said, you must listen to any piece of music at least 15 times because it won't like you either. You know, at the end. <laughs> And, and 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 it's absolutely true. Uh, we 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 have to use our memories much more, and we have to be reflective about it. And particularly for some musics, where it is really discourse in sound. And if you want to understand that discourse, you've got to be able to go back over things again and just see how it's expressed. And the problem is now uh, is that, that people are listening to music in sound bites. And, 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 and that, that concerns me, particularly amongst young people. Uh, uh, and that's why I've, I've, I've just written a book for Japan, uh, which is uh, the English translation is, 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 is going to be learning to listen. Uh, but it's getting people to be reflective uh, and to understand how things go together uh, and to give them some sort of system rather than just relying on emotion alone. We, emotion is important. Uh, nobody, you know, we wouldn't listen to any music if the emotion was, wasn't important. But to actually understand why we feel that way about it uh, is often to do with structural components in there and how it's put together and how they are timed. And composers, they manipulate time. And they use sound to do that. And it's how it's done. It's why one performance is better than an... Oh, one performance appeals to us more than another performance appeals to us. And, and, and learning to understand that is important. That's one of the big joys of understanding music, and which is why it is such a crime now that uh, music is being pulled out of education programmes and, and curricula. And, and uh, people, you know, they're, they're uh, getting a lot of, of contemporary music which people can stream which is very similar if you look at it structurally a lot of the music now that we have is 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 very similar it really is and it's not a discourse you can't have a discourse in three minutes i would argue you really can't you know unless you're dealing with you know uh, zen koan which are pro provocative uh, but 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 uh but vast majority of music i just feel it's almost like fast food um, it's just the same sort of hamburger, but it just has a different sort of chutney on top. 
I think that's a good analogy because that's what also people eat. <laughs> so, <laughs> so if, if, if this wouldn't be good in some way uh, with air quotes, um, people wouldn't do or buy it. And I think to, to show them either in the culinary space, <laughs> how real tomato tastes or whatever you want, and then also bring them in, maybe just leave the headphones at the door and go into the opera and listen to a piece that you have never heard before in that way. And maybe that's that's also um, a, a hypothesis, a hypothesis I'm, I'm using a lot in, in my work that I tell people, the way you're listening to music is the way that you're listening to your partner, to your client, to society. And then you always get the, huh, like you say, hey, what do you do? Or do you know it better? And then the my answer is often, it's not about if I'm right or wrong, but it's about, is this a good question or is this a good hypothesis? And how does it work for you? Yeah. And, and, and you see, I, I think also what, what was the great discovery for me after years of playing uh, and, and, and taking part in musical activity was when I decided to do this, to, to write this book. Uh, and and I, I thought, okay, well, what is this stuff called music anyway? And where did it come from? Uh, and, and I started to look into that. And suddenly I thought, oh, my goodness. I had no idea this sort of legacy that there is. And I went back into anthropological research uh, and I looked at, you know, how deeply music is connected with our physiology and how we think and the fact that the origins of music really come from the fact that it's kind of a co-created system for, for, for creating relationships and, and supporting relationships. That's all it is in the end. And if you look at, there, there's a lot of research done uh, at the turn of the millennium uh, and some specific research too, which brought together anthropologists and language experts and people dealing with neuroscience. And it was a huge project that was put together. And, and it basically turned a lot of, of uh, thinking about the origins of music on its head, particularly things like harmony. Uh, uh, and, you know, we, 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 the, the conventional wisdom is that, you know, harmony emerged in the Middle Ages in Europe and, uh, and you know, we started to think, well, it's actually probably harmony is one of the first things we ever did when we came out of the trees and went on the savannah. And we started to run around in groups and, and the sort of harmony basically means if we did things together because it was effective. We, we could shout together. And if we shouted together as kind of quite insignificant, quite pun puny uh, human beings, when we were being attacked by something else, it was found to be really effective. And we see that now still, you know, on the streets in protests where people shout together. It's a form of harmony. It's a unison harmony, but it's people doing it together. You know, we see it when the when the when the all blacks come from New Zealand and they do they do the hacker at the beginning of a yeah yeah. And, and, but it's there and it's inside us to do that. You know that idea of working together in harmony. We've built railways. We've built pyramids from singing songs. You know, and and so when you look at that and you think, well, actually. Music is much more than what the current record industry is giving us. It has much deeper roots, and that is the value in society, and that is why it should be in school systems, and that is why it shouldn't be taken away, because it is teaching us something which is basically about humanity. 
and, and I, I didn't, I just came to this over the past sort of 10, 15 years of researching this book and suddenly realised actually what I'd been involved in, being in the orchestra and things like that. So, so when we use metaphors like orchestras for business uh, and, and uh, uh, things, it's, it's actually much, much deeper than that for me. Mm-hmm. It really is. Okay. And that, that, that's what I try to, to, to also uh, say in, when we talk about music thinking. It's, first, it's not about the music. It's about everything around the music, and, the, and including the music. Meaning if we scale from a duo to a quartet, to a, a tentet or to an orchestra, to a jambo orchestra, to a big orchestra or mala eight. So that's one, one way of scaling, but it doesn't stop there. The idea is what we just had in the opera house. It's not about the orchestra. It's about the orchestra and everything around it, all the people making it together. And I think that's for me more than a metaphor. It's an analogy to how we run our business. Are, are we now in the back, in, 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 in backstage? Uh, talking about stuff, who's front stage, how many people are there, what's the dy- dynamics there? So there's a lot of dynamic strategy in between, and I think that's so that's so powerful to to use. And it's also interesting because you always learn about new music and uh, and about how people listen, and and that's also something what what I really love in in in, in your in in your saying is like between Japan between the east and the west and i really love your 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 book it looks like everything's coming together it is and and, and also I, and there's another thing which i which was really it had a profound influence on me uh, i did a lot of people of work with people with disability and i ran the music course at the royal school for deaf children for two years uh, which was fascinating and incredibly challenging uh, to to work there and and i it was all experimental, uh, and the teachers who were there and the carers were just fantastic. And it was, uh, they were just trying to find ways to work with these children who had multiple challenges. It wasn't just deafness. Deafness was kind of a common uh, problem that, that, that they were all working with. But they were blind. They had uh, behavioural uh, uh, challenges, um, uh, and and it was kind of the the last place they could actually go to because, you know, a lot of them were violent as well and, and, and very strong, even though they were eight or nine years old, you know, they, they are hugely strong. Uh, uh, and one of the challenges for them was really their socialising behaviours. And, uh, and we, we kept being asked to go down. The, 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 the people, that, the, the, all the teachers and carers, really found it valuable. We didn't quite understand when we were going down there but we did things with them and just responded tried to give the teachers tools that they could uh, use with, with the kids and the one thing that really changed a lot of things was when we were doing just a little rhythmical thing and we noticed that one of the children had gone off into the corner and he'd made a little drum kit out of out of uh, boxes and he was playing exactly in time with other things that were going on in the room but these children are meant to be deaf and it you know suddenly realized what assumptions we make about deafness uh, and and it's kind of it's 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 not as simple as not being able to hear it's really not it's much more complicated and it has a whole culture around it to uh, deafness uh, but then we started to say okay well, why is he able to do that what can we do and we realized that actually most of the children at the school could understand what pulse was 
but we just hadn't realised it, we hadn't spotted it. And we started at what was actually a very basic, simple little samba group with these kids. And they could, and it was extraordinary what these, these children could pick up. But what the impact that had was that their socialising behaviours started to change in the school. As their socialising behaviours changed, so their attainment in school changed as well, because they were no longer fighting with each other, and they were collaborating. So it was a huge uh, eye-opener for me uh, to sort of what, what was possible and about not making assumptions. Uh, and I, I, it, was, it, was, it was a real gift. I was always, you know, I feel deeply indebted to that sort of experience of working with those children and particularly the carers that were there who were really up for experimenting. I mean, we, we put a child inside a piano, you know, or something like that and, and work with them or and, and just trying to create a form of, of dialogue with a child who didn't have language, mm. uh, trying to feed off them, and then, uh, and it was it was incredibly effective. Uh, all we did there, you know, uh, my, my friend of mine uh, was a very good pianist, and he would say to these children, he said, "Would you like to sing or play the piano?" And he also he was a very good vocalist, and the child would say, "I'm going to sing." So he would play this Rachmaninoff on the piano, and the child would sing, you know, with great gusto, all sorts of things, but. They had this great, you know, uh, convincing accompaniment there, and then Howard would change over. He said, "All right, I'll sing now. You play the piano." So it would be fists and hands and legs, and and, and he'd sing this beautiful leader over the top of it. You know, ah, nice these contrasts. You know, like that. <laughs> Pauline Oliveros calls this embodied listening, and <laughs> so you you also she she also said you hear with your ears, you listen with your brain. And embodied listening brings uh, this together. By the way, I think this is a, a very great um, link, um, what you just said, because also to the Beethoven Ninth, because Beethoven was deaf when he composed it. So we, 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 we forget, we just listen to the music, but we don't go back and understand, hey, wait a minute, this guy couldn't hear any, anymore. But what, so there is a power in, 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 in everyone, in every single person, or if you can uh, yeah, hear or, or not. And, 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 and the, another thing with Beethoven 9, remember that up until at the end of the 19th century, very few people had heard it. We, we forget, we think, oh, everybody knew Beethoven 9. Of course they didn't. It yeah. was a big orchestra, it was expensive to put on. So its kind of reputation went ahead of it in some sort of way, even though people had not heard it. Absolutely. So we, we can we can take anything for granted, and sometimes it helps to dive a little bit into the structure of of something to 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 understand more. And sometimes it has to go back and to 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 get a little bit more history of something. Wow. So I think we covered a lot. <laughs> And uh, I'm really looking forward to your book. And but you you told me it's in Japanese only, right? It is at the moment. Yes, it's, it's specifically uh, for that audience uh, because the, the, it's for parents, Japanese parents, uh, uh, and uh, there's lots of, of reasons around that. But what I did realize, and it's a common thing, uh, not just in Japan, that you know parents want to help their children when they're struggling with their homework. And uh, they can manage it when it's language, they can manage it with math or geography or languages, and they know what to do. When it comes to music and the arts, parents generally don't know what to do. 
So it's really, uh, and, and if you think about it, most people, it's wonderful when they play instruments, but most people, their contact with music is from listening. And we never teach children how to listen. So that's why the book is learning to listen, in effect. Is there anything you we did not cover before 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 we close? Is there anything that you would like to share? Yes, I've, I've been I've had some very fortunate uh, opportunities. I did uh, once had to do the TED talk for uh, World Wildlife Fund, so you'll find that online. Uh, uh, it was their very first TED talk, and uh, I was asked to talk about sound and sustainability. So there's lots of ways you can deal with sound, and you can take it into lots of different areas. But you might like to watch that. Absolutely, I will put uh, the the links into the show notes. And thank you, Michael. Um, it was really a pleasure to to talk and to to share ideas and to to um, in in our minds jump uh, between the UK and, and and Japan and carpentry and uh, and music. So we we covered a lot. So thank you very much, Michael. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for listening. I really appreciate this. Because listening is one of the top leadership skills and I feel honored about this. It is my mission to find, create and share inspirations for meaningful collaboration based on music analogies. If you want to support this, please subscribe to the podcast, give us a rating or write a review on iTunes or Spotify. And more inspirations can be found on musicthinking.com. We have a blog and you can download the Music Thinking Framework. And finally, I would love to hear your feedback. And if you need help with a business challenge, please reach out to me via email podcast at musicthinking.com. <laughs>